Jack wants to marry Gwendolyn and Algernon wants to marry Cecily. Both women <laughs> want to know if the men are earnest. <laughs> Today, we are covering our first play, The Importance of Being Earnest by Oscar Wilde. Let's, Let's get, get lit! Alexis. And this is Kari. And you're listening to Lit Society, a show about books and drama. Yes. And it's just a reminder, we are on the YouTubes today. We're always on YouTube every week, but this episode is a video podcast because it's a wild card episode. Yeah, you get yeah. It? Wow. No, I don't. Oscar Wilde. Ah! <laughs> Table slapping laughter in the early hours. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I didn't. That was a good one, though, Thank for real. In real life. <laughs> so back to the wild card episodes. We haven't done them in a long time. Right. And back to video episodes. We haven't done it. Should we do a check-in or should we jump to society? Says? I, I want to do a check-in. Oh, okay. <laughs> so tell us about yourself. Now, listeners, you might not know this, but Alexis was once trained as a lifeguard and she ridicules me often because <laughs> I do not know how to swim. However, <laughs> I have had three swim classes. <laughs> I've had three swim classes. I've passed them all. I don't know what's wrong. Oh, no, oh, in yeah, my yeah. life. You yeah, were even in, in I life. think, a couple of them. <laughs> but um, I started a new swim class today. Oh, my God. Got goodness. up at 4.30 in the morning. Oh, my God. And we, yeah, we practiced breathing for about an hour. <laughs> That's it. That's so important. It's a start. And congratulations. I'm excited. Yes. Listen, I went to um, Orlando with my niece and uh-huh. she um, she swims, but she holds her nose when she swims. Mm. And so I'm like, listen, that's not swimming. And we got to teach you how to breathe. Yeah. So I spent literally an hour trying to teach her how to breathe with her whole face under the water. Yeah, that's the survival. Yeah. That's so, that's the beginning. I'll keep you posted. Oh, I can't wait to hear. I I'm looking forward to it. Okay, so what's been going on with you? How you listen, been? Listen, listen. So much has happened yeah. to me at um over the past what four months? Yeah, four months. It's August now. Um, I don't have a job anymore. <laughs> I I don't have a job anymore. I've decided I'm gonna just take a journey, and I won't let them break my soul. Okay. And I'm gonna release the Re- mind. Release, your job. <laughs> release the job. Well, yes, you know. Beyonce and Big Frida said, "Release your job." And Alexa said, "Say less, say less." So I'm gonna do some traveling. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm looking forward to it and hopefully down the line kind of relocate somewhere. I haven't figured that out where yet. Just a new chapter, starting a new chapter in your life. Yeah, yeah. And with that in mind, you guys, come on my Alexis is Traveling IG page and visit me there. Follow Alexis is Traveling. And we might have some content in the podcast form related to traveling. We are. Yeah, we are. We're going to do it. <laughs> yeah. And in a couple of months, it's going to be brilliant. I'm really excited about that. So yeah, stay tuned to too. a new show from us. Yeah. Also, now it's time for Society Says. And this is where we share our readers comments with the rest of our lit society. That's right. So, Kari, what? 
comment can you find or did you find that you'd like to share with us? I have an awesome comment from Apple Podcasts. And this was left by, I'm going to say, Timmy Yak. Uh, They say Alexis and Kari can do no wrong. I've been listening (laughs) to this podcast for a little over seven months now. And in that time, I've gone through all their released episodes. Thank you, by the way. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Some of them more than once. And I've never not found myself cracking up or being washed over in silence as I listen to their insightful takes. Who Wow. That's thank you. A big deal. Recently, they released their first episode that went without spoilers. And I will admit I was a little very or very weary at this change. That's right. That was probably Deacon King Kong. We didn't want to spoil mm -hmm. that book. They go on to say, I feared that without going into a deep dive of the book, the podcast would lose my attention entirely and I'd be without my favorite form of work time entertainment. You could imagine my relief, of course, when I listened to the episode on Deacon King Kong and still felt as if I was in a room with two close friends listening to them laugh and discuss a book, which piqued my interest enough to, for the first time, actually go out and buy one of the books they were discussing. I'm not sure what the future holds for these two women, but I do know that as long as they're releasing episodes I'll be subscribed and reading along so thank you that is a lovely comment and that's what we wanted that's why we didn't want to spoil the book it had just come out recently and if a book has come out in the last year or two we've decided to have spoiler free episodes which have been going really well yeah well we did spoil one recently that was yeah we don't like it we might just go ahead (laughs) we're gonna be adjusting a little we'll figure it out we'll just take it you know a little bit at a time right yeah exactly so what about you what have you found from the society so yeah i found this comment from katie hibby on apple podcast right and katie hibby says such a pleasure was my title old timey sure but it perfectly <laughs> reflects my feelings for this podcast these women feel like friends i'm hanging out with on a cozy couch with my legs curled up under me maybe i'm drinking tea maybe coffee maybe a cocktail yeah i'm so so happy <laughs> i found this podcast and we're happy that Katie Hippie found this podcast too so yeah. such a heartwarming comment and we love it but remember readers have your comments shared message us on twitter instagram facebook or leave us a comment on apple Podcasts, and of course that five star review on spotify so why don't we go into a discussion about the author okay sounds good kari what do you know about Oscar Wilde. So here in Chicago, we have an amazing um, art institute. It's our art museum. And in the, um, I believe, American, um, maybe American modern wing, uh, there is a series of paintings by Ivan Albright. And he also, um, I think, is from the area. But anyway, you'll remember a movie we watched uh, a long time ago called The Picture of Dorian Gray. Yes, And that's based on the novel of Dorian Gray. The The paintings in the movie really make the book come to life. It's about a man who trades um, himself with a photo because he never wants to grow old. But as he becomes more depraved, the photo becomes more disgusting. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those, that series of art by uh, Ivan Albright is here in Chicago. Um, So from an early age, I just remember being so tied to that paint, those paintings. Um, They're really grotesque and dark, but beautiful in a lot of ways. Well, just thinking about the movie, but I'd love to see the exhibit. Yeah. Have you never seen the painting? No, I, well, 
Not in real life. Okay, okay. So we might have to do that. So yeah, so th- that's the book I'm most I'm closest to by Oscar Wilde. Um, but in it, you see glimpses of how he feels about marriage. He's always so cynical, um, so terribly disrespectful to marriage, and he always has a character that is so jaded. But the language, what I love most about his writing, um, or what I enjoy at all is the way language is used, how witty the conversation is. No word is, um, you know, just said to be said. It's like they practice at home, which I'll actually talk about later. But um, that that's the book that where I really appreciate Oscar's writing the most. What about you? What do you know about Oscar Wilde? So I I got the introduction from you telling me about the um, Dorian Gray movie. Mm -hmm. However, I didn't recall when I found the importance of Ernest that that was Oscar Wilde. Me neither. Actually, it's his last play, which, yeah, I didn't I didn't know either. Yeah. So from my research, he was born in 1854 in Dublin, Ireland, and he died in November of 1900 from meningitis. His father was uh, Ireland's leading ear and eye surgeon, and he published books. Um, His mother was a poet and an authority on Celtic myth and folklore. Mm. Wilde, a poet and a a dramatist. Um, He was known for his wit and flamboyance. He was married and had two children. He had some drama in his life where he um, had one of his plays censored. And then he was tried for sodomy and indecency in 1895 and sent to prison for hard labor for two years. Other things that he did included being a spokesman for the late 19th century aesthetic movement, a European arts movement that centered on the doctrine that art exists for the sake of beauty alone. Mm. It's not a political thing. It's just it's art because it's beautiful or it's, it's, it's beautiful because it's art. It's beautiful because mm-hmm. it's art. Yeah. And that's it. So that's what I learned. <laughs> and he was also an editor for the magazine we know as the Women's World magazine. You oh, heard of that magazine? No, I, don't, I think so. But I think it's just odd that he was an editor the editor for woman's world. Yeah, he mm-hmm. was. Um, and then he did several plays, including the one that we did to we're covering today. And the picture of Dorian Gray is his only novel. His oh, only, okay, okay. most of what he did was plays. And this particular play was performed on stage February 14th, 1985. Okay. Excuse me. 1895. <laughs> There's a little <laughs> no, switch. Yeah, that's big deal. Did you have anything else that you wanted to share about Oscar Wilde? Yeah, I know we're not going to get too deep into the tragic ending of his life, um, but this is his last play. He had two sons with his wife, but he had started an affair, um, a relationship with a young man. And this was illegal. The man's father was ready to kill him. He had him prosecuted. And this is eventually what led to, I'll say, the demise of Oscar Wilde, yep. mm-hmm. the the infamous end to him. And it was a, a time where you could see how quickly society can turn on someone. So they yes. praised him, celebrated yes, yes. him. He was just exalted. And then as soon as um, he went to trial for something that was openly known about him, society turned on him. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he did not have a happy ending. No, he didn't. Yeah. But, um, yeah, his 
use of language probably would have um, continued to become more um, sophisticated in his artwork. That was a sharp um, downturn for him. Very quickly. After he was. um, After a meteoric rise. mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, that's what I know about Oscar Wilde. Yeah, Fascinating, fascinating Mm -hmm. story. So we're going to jump into how to read a play. We're going to talk a little bit about it, but not like really in depth, just some, you know, real surfacey stuff. (laughs) But and I only do that because I know you had some play experience in your life, haven't you? A little bit. (laughs) Come on. I want to hear about it. Just a little bit. Like a lot of people. Okay. Uh, I went to a um, a college program for theater. Because that's a great use of your time. So listen, I want to hear about it. That's all. I don't have anything else to say. I've only been paid once for my acting ability. See y'all. See what you done (laughs) learned about Kari. Okay. Okay. That was a long time ago. (laughs) So what are the things that stand out that are different from reading a play, a script for a play versus a novel? Yeah. So um, reading a script, it's um, important to remember that because it's meant to be performed, a lot of things you are given in the uh, context of the performance. Whereas in a a novel, it's only meant to be consumed uh, via, you know, being heard or being read. And so everything is implied in the words. But with a play, a lot of things are implied either by how the actor presents the language that's used in the play or in the setting. Okay. And then one of the things for me that I see, and and you're talking about it a little bit there, is that the stage direction is right there. Mm -hmm. And that's really flat, isn't it? It's not, it's not the colorful words that you see in a novel, right? Because you're going to get Jack walked along the dark winding road to the village pub. But with, um, a play, you're going to get Jack enters the room, right? Yeah. And you're not even supposed to see the script because you're not a player. So yeah, yeah, it's, you're going to see Jack look stage, right? Sure. And it's interesting because, um, a theatrical work can have a, um, completely different meaning. If you see it twice based on the director's interpretation of the work and how the players, um, um, interpret their characters. So you might see something that's a comedy that's a little more solemn, uh, um, maybe has more melancholy undertones in one performance based on another director's interpretation, um, which might be more colorful and more lighthearted. Yeah. Am I explaining that right? Yeah, no, no, that, that's, that's what I needed. So, <laughs> um, so the play begins at Algernon's home mm-hmm. and from here on out, I am going to say algae because Algernon is a mouthful, okay? I thought you were going to say a mouse no. that dies. <laughs> That's flowers for Algernon. Spoiler. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. So it begins at his home and his home is described as luxurious and artistical. How would you Paint that picture for us. It's an old home, an inherited residence. Um, He comes from aristocracy. He's highly educated with nothing to do but dress himself and talk about people. Um, So he has a lot of unnecessary things in his home that are just there to be beautiful, admired and envied. Okay. And so what? It's Downton Abbey. (laughs) Next. (laughs) Okay. But who would play him in a movie or something? Yeah, this is the um, Timothy Chalet and um, 
uh, what's that boy? I really like Holland, Tom Holland. Oh, Tom Holland. This is the duet everyone's been waiting for. And Tom, as the more stoic, more possibly talented actor, would play the idiot. Um, it, the most idiotic character in the performance, which would be Algie to me. So I think Tom Holland, Zendaya's boyfriend, is Algie. Okay. 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 Right. So, um, like I said, he was playing the piano. He was like, I'm just playing the piano. Did you hear me? And his man servant was like, uh, no, I think it's rude to listen. Yeah, yeah. So he's playing poorly. And he's like, I don't play scientifically. I play for the beauty of it. Did you hear me? And the like you said, the man servant's like, I didn't think it polite to listen. I love when the um, butler, whoever, is always the most intelligent in the room, like Jeffrey on Fresh Prince. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. So then, and a few minutes later, um, Lance tells, that's the manservant, Lance tells um, Algie that Ernest Worthing is here. Mm-hmm. And that, Kara, you said, it, well, why don't you describe uh, Ernest and again, repeat the character. Okay, so Ernest is Ernest. He's a very um, controlled man, meaning what I'm trying to say is that his place in society is a little more, um, uh, a little less secure than Algie's. Mm, yeah, so he, for sure. he is very, um, everything he does is intentional. He's very concerned with propriety. Whereas Algie's more fast and loose, Ernest is more, uh, doing things by the book and for a reason. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And this is the Tom Holland character. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, this is the Timothée oh. Chalet. All right. Oh, I'm going to get that right. Okay. So then when Ernest walks in, Algie is eating a sandwich. Yeah. And so he's, a cucumber sandwich. A cucumber sandwich. And Ernest is like, Oh, you eating again? <laughs> and Algie replies, I think it's customary in good society to take some refreshment at five o'clock. <laughs> Just like. And this is funny because you have your uh, breakfast, then you might have uh, tea, but then you have dinner. People aren't eating at 5 p.m. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Algie going to do what he want to do. He's going to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so then Ernest asks. No, Algie asked him, where you been, man? I've been missing you in the streets, okay? And Ernest tells him that he's been in the country. And Algie says, like, what for? And Ernest says, well, when you're in town, you can entertain yourself. But when you're in the country, you got to entertain other people. And that is really boring. Yeah. <laughs> so so why doesn't he like the country, Kari? I don't think it's that Ernest doesn't like the country. He's a city. He's a city boy. So he just um, and he enjoys being more in a Russell Bustle city type of place. But we'll learn that he has to go to the country periodically. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when he goes, there's a cute um, scene here where he's like, like you said, um, Ernest says, when you go to the country, you entertain everyone else. And Algie's like, oh, your neighbors, you like talking to them? <laughs> and Ernest is like, oh, no, I never talk to them. So it's funny. He's entertaining them just by being. His existence <laughs> gives mean, them fodder for their conversation. And that's how he entertains others. But it's true anyway. Yeah. So now, mind you, the whole time they're having this conversation, Algie is eating cucumber sandwiches. Yeah, and that I'm are supposed to be for his aunt and cousin. Yeah, and so Algie then tells Ernest, his aunt is, and cousin are coming in town and the cucumbers and the tea are for them. And so Ernest gets like really excited because um, um, Ernest gets excited because he likes 
Gwendolyn, right. which is the cousin. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, well, my aunt don't really like you because you be really flirting with the cousin and that ain't good. And the cousin be flirting with you and that is not okay. <laughs> he was like, but I love her and yeah. I want to propose. Not only do I flirt with your cousin, Algie, I want to marry her too. And he's like, wait, And Algie's what? like, oh, you gonna make me throw up my cucumber sandwiches. <laughs> he <laughs> said, you can't propose to her until you tell me about who is Cecily? Oh, who's Cecily? Uh-oh. He was like, wait, wait. <laughs> I don't know nobody named Cecily. Yeah, and the men in this play lie for no reason impulsively. Because <laughs> he could have just said who Cecily was. Roll off the tongue lie. But he's like, I don't even know. It's, I've never heard the name Cecily. I don't know. It's, what does that mean? What language? <laughs> and then Algie says, hey. Hey, servant, come yeah. on in here and bring that cigarette case. And Ernest is like, you have my cigarette case this whole time. I've been writing Scotland Yard. I've been writing the police, begging them. And then Algie's like, oh, so is there a reward? It's <laughs> <laughs> a little. It is. And you know what? I just was outdone. You wrote Scotland Yard about your cigarette case? Different times, y'all. Different times for sure. So he tells them, look. He pulls, Lane brings the cigarette case and he actually reads to him what it says in there. Mm-hmm. He's like, it says, from little Cecily with her fondest love to dear Uncle Jack. Who is this? Yeah. What's it, going on? Yeah. And so Ernie, Ernest tells Algie, look, the man who adopted me when I was a little boy, he has this granddaughter and I'm her guardian. And like the granddaughter, she's like excessively beautiful and she's 18 year old, 18 years old. And she calls me Uncle Jack. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, I like to meet her. <laughs> <laughs> when can I meet her? He's yeah. like, never. You can't <laughs> never meet her. You can't never know where my country house is. He's like, yeah. I won't even tell you where my country house is. So back on off. So Algie is like, well. Why does she call you Jack? Jack. Yeah. Because your name is Ernest. And he's like, no, my name is Jack. And I was like, no, it's not. Because <laughs> I introduce you to everybody as Ernest. <laughs> your card says Ernest. Look, see here, I got this card and I'm going to keep this card as proof that your name is Ernest. <laughs> right. And he was like, you even look like an Ernest. Uh-huh. <laughs> You're the most Ernest looking person I know. <laughs> so you are Ernest. Right. He's like, no, man. When I'm in town, I'm Ernest. But when I'm in the country, I'm Jack. I'm Jack. Yeah. So um, I keep coming to town, right? Because uh-huh. I'm in love with your cousin, Gwendolyn, and I want to marry her. But I don't want anyone in the country suspicious of my activities. So I tell them my real name is Jack. But I tell them that I have a brother named Ernest that lives in the city and I got to go visit him. And then when I come to the city, I'm Ernest. Mm-hmm. You get it? <laughs> and the, the gift that I got was a gift from the country. So yeah. they call me Jack because that's where they know me in yeah. the country. Mm-hmm. So, but anyway, I need to kill off Ernest, right? I need to kill him off. Because I want to marry Gwendolyn and I want this Ernest person around. So I'm going to kill off that imaginary brother. And then also, I think my niece is in love with him. So I, I, so <laughs> yeah. I really need to get rid of him because I don't want her having any interest or anything. Yeah, and someone that doesn't exist. And Algie is like, you know what? I think you a bumberous. <laughs> he was like, what? What is that? Kari, what's a bumberous? Yeah, Um. so what I understood is that Algernon has a similar uh, scapegoat 
in the country. So Algernon lives in the city, but he tells people he's going to see his sick cousin. No, just a friend that he made up. Uh, okay, a, a friend who's sick often. Sick, yes. All invalid. the time, he's got to go visit him. And his name is Bunbury. Yeah. And that way he gets to go to the country to visit, quote unquote, Bunbury and live however he wants to live and do whatever he wants without his friends and people knowing. Exactly. <laughs> Well, that is exactly what dentists always do. Now go on, tell me the whole thing. I may mention that I have always suspected you of being a confirmed and secret bumberist. And I am quite sure of it now. Bumberist? What on earth do you mean by a bumberist? I'll reveal to you the meaning of that incomparable expression as soon as you are kind enough to inform me why you are Ernest in town and Jack in the country. Well, produce my cigarette case bust. <laughs> Here it is. Now produce your explanation and pray make it improbable. My dear fellow, there is nothing improbable about my explanation at all. In fact, it's perfectly ordinary. Old Mr. Thomas Cardew, who adopted me when I was a little boy, made me in his will guardian to his granddaughter, Miss Cecily Cardew. Cecily, who addresses me as her uncle from motives of respect that you could not possibly appreciate, lives at my place in the country under the charge of her admirable governess, Miss Prism. Where is that place in the country, by the way? That is nothing to you, dear boy. You are not going to be invited. I may tell you candidly that the place is not in Shopshire. I suspected that, my dear fellow. I have bumburied all over Shopshire on two separate occasions. Now go on. Why are you Ernest in town and Jack in the country? My dear Algie, I don't know whether you will be able to understand my real motives, you are hardly serious enough. When one is placed in the position of guardian, one has to adopt a very high moral tone on all subjects. It's one's duty to do so. And as a high moral tone can hardly be said to conduce very much to either one's health or one's happiness, in order to get up to town, I have always pretended to have a younger brother of the name Ernest, who lives in the Albany and gets into the most dreadful scrapes. That, my dear Algie, is the whole truth, pure and simple. The truth is rarely pure and never simple. Modern life would be very tedious if it were either. And modern literature a complete impossibility. That wouldn't be at all a bad thing. Literary criticism is not your forte, my dear fellow. Don't try it. You should leave that to people who haven't been at a university. They do it so well in the daily papers. What you really are is a Bunburyist. I was quite right in saying you are a Bunburyist. You are one of the most advanced Bunburyists I know. What on earth do you mean? You have invented a very useful younger brother called Ernest in order that you may be able to come up to town as often as you like. I have invented an invaluable permanent invalid called Bunbury in order that I may be able to go down into the country whenever I choose. Bunbury is perfectly invaluable. If it wasn't for Bunbury's extraordinary bad health, for instance, I wouldn't be able to dine with you at Willis's tonight. For I have been really engaged to Aunt Augusta for more than a week. I haven't asked you to dine with me anywhere tonight. I know. 
You are absurdly careless about sending out invitations. It is very foolish of you. Nothing annoys people so much as not receiving invitations. You had much better dine with your Aunt Augusta. I haven't the smallest intention of doing anything of the kind. To begin with, I dine there on Monday and once a week is quite enough to dine with one's own relations. In the second place, whenever I do dine there, I am always treated as a member of the family and sent down with either no woman at all or two. In the third place, I know perfectly well whom she will place me next to tonight. She will place me next to Mary Farquhar, who always flirts with her own husband across the dinner table. That is not very pleasant. Indeed, it is not even decent. And that sort of thing is enormously on the increase. The amount of women in London who flirt with their own husbands is perfectly scandalous. It looks so bad. It is simply washing one's clean linen in public. Besides, now that I know you are to be a confirmed bumperist, I naturally want to talk to you about bumpering. I want to tell you the rules. I'm not a bumperist at all. If Gwendolyn accepts me, I'm going to kill my brother. Indeed, I think I'll kill him in any case. Cecily is a little too much interested in him. It is rather a bore. So I'm going to get rid of Ernest. And I strongly advise you to do the same with your uh, Mr. Your invalid friend who has the absurd name. Nothing will induce me to part with Bumpery. And if you ever get married, which seems to me extremely problematic, you will be very glad to know Bumbury. A man who marries without knowing Bumbury has a very tedious time of it. That is nonsense. If I marry a charming girl like Gwendolyn, and she is the only girl I ever saw in my life that I would marry, I certainly wouldn't want to know Bumbury. Then your wife will. You don't seem to realize that in married life, three is company and two is none. That, my dear young friend, is the theory that the corrupt French drama has been propounding for the last 50 years. Okay, so after Jack and Algie have this conversation, uh, Gwendolyn come in and cousin, excuse me, uh, Augusta comes in and Gwendolyn enters and she asks for the cucumber sandwiches. Now, what happens here, Kari? Like, oh, <laughs> he done ate all of them, y'all. And I can't express how funny this is. Because er, we didn't say, I don't think we said it, but when Ernest, whose real name is Jack, came in, he was like, well, let me have one of them sandwiches. And Algie's like, um, no, they're from my aunt. Meanwhile, Algie got like three of them in his mouth. Absolutely. And Ernest is like, whose name is Jack? Uh, you eating them? And he's like, Algie's like, my aunt, not yours. <laughs> we'll get you some bread and butter. By the way, Gwendolyn loves bread and butter. Y'all go get along. Y'all can't like, have no sandwiches. And then he says that I asked, where are the cucumber sandwiches? And Lane, the manservant, automatically comes in and is like, they didn't have none at the market today. <laughs> yeah, he's good. He's good at covering for his uh, master. I mean, he came in so cool because Algie was like, what happened to the cucumber sandwiches? Yeah. Why aren't there cucumber sandwiches for my aunt? Yeah. Like right, there wasn't just... any at the market. Yeah. And meanwhile, listen, y'all, I had a... This was really funny to me. So I was like, he been eating cucumber sandwiches the, the whole, whole time, time since we met him. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> so when Jack and Gwendolyn are alone, Jack reveals his affection for her and his desire to marry her. Gwendolyn says, from reading the most expensive monthly magazines, <laughs> um, I got this idea that I should marry somebody named Ernest. And <laughs> as it is, 
you are Ernest preparing, proposing to me and the name Ernest inspires absolute confidence. So, so the moment Algie mentioned he had a friend named Ernest, I knew that we was going to be together. I my knew. own, my very own Ernest, my very own Ernest. Mm-hmm. And Jack is like, but what? I mean, would you love me if my name wasn't Ernest? Reminder, Jack's name is not Ernest. That is who he pretends to be in the city. <laughs> and Gwendolyn is like, um, but your name is Ernest. So we ain't even got to worry about it. Why talk about that? And he was like, but um, she said, a Jack is a John. And yeah. Jack, John, I mean, anybody who marries a John, they should be pitied, really. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, maybe I should change my name and get rebaptized. I got to get christened. I mean, go to the, uh, I'll be right back. <laughs> so Gwendolyn goes and tells her mother that she's engaged. And Aunt Augusta is like, how you know you ain't engaged? I didn't tell you you was engaged. You'll be engaged How when we tell you, know? you. How do you know? Mm-hmm. It's not based on anything you do. Mm-hmm. So she says, well, you know what? Let me interview this character. She asks all the important questions, right. right? What are some of those questions? Like, how much do you make? What property? The age? Do you know anything? Yeah, do you? I do you find smoke? it best that people know everything or know nothing. Which are you? He goes, I know nothing. She goes, perfect. And your politics. And yeah. then finally she asks about do you smoke? his parents. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> I like it when people have something to do. All men need a hobby. <laughs> and finally, she asked about his parents. And Jack says, well, both of the parents were lost. OK, and I was found. I was found in the handbag. And she handbag. goes, it's one thing to lose one parent. But if you lose two, you just being negligent. <laughs> <laughs> that is what she said. It's just like just negligent. And she says, you know what? Your story, I don't like it. And, you know, I don't think I could give my daughter to you. You don't mm-hmm. really qualify unless you come up with one of those parents. <laughs> <laughs> if you can find one of the parents you lost, <laughs> then maybe. So did you talk about his beginning in life? Mm-hmm. How the the man who found him, his guardian, found him in a handbag. In a handbag. At the train station. At the train station. Yeah. Very odd. Very odd. And she said, go back and find one of them. And maybe, just maybe, I'll give you a chance to marry my daughter. No, no surety in there. So mm-hmm. Jack decides, I'm going to call him. I'm going to start calling him Jack now. That's fine. Just know that no one else in the book knows him as Jack except Algie. Yes. And everyone's calling him Ernest in the city. Yes. And um, so she's like... My mom's not going to let me marry you. I heard your story. It sounds so romantic, but my mom's not going to let yeah, me Yeah, I heard you was penniless and found in a handbag. <laughs> I love you even more. <laughs> but alas. So she's like, what's your address in the country? I know your city address, but what's your country address? Because I'm going to start writing to you. I'm going to write to you every day because mm-hmm. I don't know if this marriage is going to happen. And so Algie is in the other room or excuse me, he, I think he's in the same room and yeah, he's, he's like... He's got his back turned because she tells him to turn around so they can have some privacy. <laughs> and he writes this address down. Jack he does. overhears it. Oh, Algie yeah, Algie, does. Right. He overhears yeah, this. Yeah. So let's move on to act two. Mm-hmm. Kari, creative visual. This is the country House. Yeah, so we meet little Sicily. Sicily, what's her name? 
Cecily. So Cecily's there with her governess. Um, they're in the yard. They're having a good time. Uh, witty banter. Um, and yeah, we just get a sense of her innocence. She's very sheltered in her life. She has these whimsical ideas about everything. She um, puts romance into everything she does. Uh, she keeps a diary, things like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So who would we cast for her? Uh, yeah, who is she? Who's young and beautiful and innocent right now? Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm going to have to think about it. mm Okay. She's not innocent. Come back to I got, us. Yeah, there yeah. No one's innocent anymore. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. <laughs> so now we got Cecily. We got the governess. The yeah. governor is, governess is always with her. Um, and during this act, we learn that Jack really presents himself as a serious person. So as they're, the governess and Cecily are talking, they're like, listen, he Jack, he helps with you. He helps his wayward brother right. Ernest in mm-hmm. the city. He's a good man. Mm-hmm. And Cecily wants to bring Jack. It wants Jack to bring Ernest because she to got the a country. crush. She's like imaginary Ernest. Yeah, bring him because we could help him. Mm-hmm. The governess and I, we we together. We could fix this. Mm-hmm. He could be influenced to do good going forward. <laughs> right. The, the governess is like, nope, he reaps what he sows. That's what he did. Anything he doing is bad and yeah. he needs to be handled and right. dealt with. <laughs> and Jack is not expected home until Monday. So they like not expecting him. They know he's in the city. So this is the scene. And Cecily um, is told to focus on her work. And then the governess is going to go for a walk. But guess who walks in? Yeah, they get an announcement that, alas, Ernest is here. In the world. And she's like, I get to meet a real life evil person. (laughs) I wonder if he looks like everyone else. Oh, he does. (laughs) She's immediately disappointed. (laughs) Ernest has come to the country house for a visit. Who is Ernest, Kari? Ernest is Algie. So remember, (laughs) Algie kept... Uh, quote unquote, Ernest, whose real name is Jack, kept his calling card. So he presents as, as evidence that I he himself is about Ernest. That. Yeah, he's the worst. <laughs> yes. <Yeah, the> <laughs> so he's like, look, it's me, Ernest, everybody. I'm finally here. Where are the cucumber sandwiches? <laughs> exactly. He got me hungry too. And then he, so he's, Algie is now bumbering as, yeah. Ernest, yeah. as Ernest. Yeah. And so he befriends Cecily, right? Mm, of course. And while Algie is bumpering, Ernest, Jack shows up. Yeah. At the very same time, unexpectedly. Yeah. And he runs into the governess on her walk with the reverend. Right. And he's like, oh, why, why are you looking so blue? We're so shocked to see you. Yeah, he's dressed in black. So remember, he wants to marry Gwendolyn. Jack does. So he comes to the country dressed in black. And the governess and the vicar, whoever, yeah. are like, what's wrong? Why are you dressed in black? And uh, Jack is like, guess what? My brother died. <laughs> Ernest. Yeah, he did. It's a shame. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, we can't go to the funeral because he died in Paris and he wouldn't want us going to Paris. So he's going to be buried there. And it's all sad, but it's all taken care of. <laughs> so sad. That's right. He's, so he's going to be wearing these morning clothes for a while. Yeah. You know, I'm in grief. So they head to the house. 
<laughs> and Cecily greets them at the door with good news. What's the good news? <laughs> is in the kitchen. And Aaron was like, oh my goodness. And the governess is like, well, having come to terms with the fact that he did, I'm a little put out that he's in the kitchen. <laughs> he's alive now? What is this? And so uh, Jack is like, no, 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 no. And uh, Cecily is like, now you two go and make up. I know y'all have had y'all disagreements, but he's come all this way. And then um, the governess is like, oh, yes, he has a very long way. Um, but Cecily's like, you guys make up and I've done my good deed for the day. <laughs> Cecily. And so... Jack is like livid. Like, mm -hmm. how did you get here? Yeah, he walks in and sees Algernon. He's ready to fight. He's ready to fight. And it's like, and the <sighs> servant comes in and is I like, um, <laughs> Ernest, the long lost brother, I've unpacked all your clothes in a room right next to Jack's. And then Jack is like, all his clothes and quote unquote Ernest, who's really Algernon, is like, Oh, yeah, I'll be here for a week. Again, where are the cucumber sandwiches? And that cute little award of yours. Yeah. So after all that is happening, Jack is like, you have got to go. You cannot stay. Now you leave. So Jack <laughs> walks away. Yeah, yeah. And then Algie sticks around and he woos and then proposes to Cecily. Right. He's like, I'm staying. I'm going to be here yeah. for the long and run. And Cecily's like, I'm so happy we're finally engaged again. <laughs> Are you going that way? Okay. <laughs> I'm so happy. She's like, oh, we've been engaged. We've been engaged for like three months already. He's yeah. like, wait, what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have all your letters. I have all your letters. And they he's like, I've written you. Don't remind me. I've had to write your letters myself. <laughs> so like... She then takes out her diary and shows him the journal entry for mm -hmm. not only when they propose, mm -hmm. but also they have broke up because no engagement is real unless you break up at least once. That's what she reminds him. You guys, this book to me is, <laughs> is obviously very funny. I almost can't even retell the story properly okay. because, you know, you're doing great. OK, <laughs> so. Cecily then tells Algie, you know what? It has been my girlish dream to marry a man named Ernest. Yes. The Just like Gwendolyn. Yes. And there's something about that name because it exudes absolute confidence. And I pity anyone married to somebody with any other name. And he's like, well, what about Algernon? She's like, Algernon? No, I would. I mean, I would always admire you as a person, but I couldn't marry someone named Algernon. You couldn't get my undivided Ooh. attention. Uh-uh, Not going to happen. Mm -mm. So Algie now considers, you know, maybe baptism. Time to get christened. Everybody got to go get christened. So he goes out and he finds the reverend or the vicar or whoever mm -hmm. that is. And so while he's out and about, another guest arrived. Who is arriving, Kyrie? Of course, this is Gwendolyn from the city. She's come to see what her betrothed's living quarters is like in the country. Uh-huh. And they have uh, a lovely Remember, meeting. Remember, she's engaged to Jack. That's right. They have a lovely meeting. Gwendolyn says, um, you know, something tells me we're going to be great friends. I like you already. Yeah, she meets Cecily right away alone. So it's just the women in this scene. Yeah, mm -hmm. and my first impressions are never wrong. And <laughs> Gwendolyn tries to um, figure out, though, 
What What's the relationship? You? Who are you? Why are you in my man's house? Yeah. Don't you got like an older woman or something yeah. that's caring for you? Yeah. She's like, no, no, I, I live here. My, um, I'm his ward. I'm his ward. Now, yeah. he ain't never told Gwendolyn he got kids. <laughs> She's like, hmm, I, I didn't hear, learn that. I wish you were 42. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a little less pretty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because yeah. too much, mm-hmm. too much is going on. So mm-hmm. Cecily tells Gwendolyn that she is Mr. Worthing's ward mm-hmm. and not Ernest. But the older brother of Ernest is. Um, and Gwendolyn's like, oh, great. Your Ernest brother, which, by the way, I didn't even know he had a brother. But men rarely talk about their brothers, especially <laughs> if they don't like them. So exactly. that's fine. Mm-hmm. So you're her. You're his brother's ward. Gotcha. Right. I'm engaged to Ernest. So as long as you're not Ernest's ward. She was like, nope. But in fact, I was engaged to him just like 10 minutes ago. We engaged. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, no, I'm I'm not Ernest's ward. But he'll soon be mine. <laughs> and she's like, what are you talking about? We're engaged. We're engaged. Ernest and I are engaged. And Gwendolyn's like, no, no. Ernest and I are engaged. And, and they're ready the to kill thing. each other. Listen, the girls are fighting. Or is it tussling? <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah, Gwendolyn's like, I don't know what you done tricked him into, but I'll be sure to save him. And then um, Cecily's like, well, whatever you two had, I'll be sure to forgive him during our marriage. <laughs> That's what she said. Well, to speak with perfect candor, Cecily, I wish that you were fully 42 and more than usually plain for your age. Ernest has a strong, upright nature. He is the very soul of truth and honor. Disloyalty would be as impossible to him as deception. But even men of the noblest possible moral character are extremely susceptible to the influence of the physical charms of others. Modern, no less than ancient history, supplies us with many most painful examples of what I refer to. If it were not so, indeed history would be quite unreadable. I beg your pardon, Gwendolyn. Did you say Ernest? Yes. Oh, but it is not Mr. Ernest Worthing who is my guardian. It is his brother, his elder brother. Ernest never mentioned to me that he had a brother. I'm sorry to say, they have not been on good terms for a long time. Ah, that accounts for it. And now that I think of it, I have never heard any man mention his brother. The subject seems distasteful to most men. Cecily, you have lifted a load from my mind. I was growing almost anxious. It would have been terrible if any cloud had come across a friendship like ours, would it not? Of course, you are quite, quite sure that it is not Mr. Ernest Worthing who is your guardian. Quite sure. In fact, I am going to be his. I beg your pardon? Dearest Gwendolyn, there is no reason why I should make a secret of it to you. Our little country newspaper is sure to chronicle the fact next week. Mr. Ernest Worthing and I are engaged to be married. My darling Cecily, I think there must be some slight error. Mr. Ernest Worthing is engaged to me. The announcement will appear in the Morning Post on Saturday at the latest. I am afraid you must be under some misconception. Ernest proposed to me exactly ten minutes ago. It is very curious, for he asked me to be his wife yesterday afternoon at 5.30. If you would care to verify the incident, pray do so. 
I never travel without my diary. One should always have something sensational to read on the train. I'm so sorry, dear Cecily, if it is any disappointment to you, but I am afraid I have the prior claim. It would distress me more than I can tell you, dear Gwendolyn, if it caused you any mental or physical anguish. But I feel bound to point out that since Ernest proposed to you, he clearly has changed his mind. If the poor fellow has been entrapped into any foolish promise, I shall consider it my duty to recuse him at once and with a firm hand. Whatever unfortunate entanglement my dear boy may have gotten into, I will never reproach him with it after we are married. Do you allude to me, Miss Cardew, as an entanglement? You are presumptuous. On an occasion of this kind, it becomes more than a moral duty to speak one's mind. It becomes a pleasure. Do you suggest, Miss Fairfax, that I entrapped Ernest into an entanglement? How dare you? There is no time for wearing the shallow mask of manners. When I see a spade, I call it a spade. I am glad to say that I have never seen a spade. It is obvious that our social spheres have been widely different. Shall I lay tea here as usual, miss? Yes, as usual. Are there many interesting walks in the vicinity, Miss Cardew? Oh, yes, a great many. From the top of one of the hills, quite close, one can see five counties. Five counties? I don't think I should like that. I hate crowds. I suppose that is why you live in town. Quite a well-kept garden, that is, Miss Cardew. So glad you like it, Miss Fairfax. I had no idea there were any flowers in the country. Oh, flowers are as common here, Miss Fairfax, as people are in London. Personally, I cannot understand how anybody manages to exist in the country. If anybody who is anybody does, the country always bores me to death. Ah, this is what the newspapers call agricultural depression, is it not? I believe the aristocracy are suffering very much from it just at present. It is almost an epidemic amongst them, I have been told. May I offer you some tea, Miss Fairfax? Thank you, detestable girl, but I require tea. Sugar? No, thank you. Sugar is not fashionable anymore. Cake or bread and butter? Bread and butter, please. Cake is rarely seen in the best houses nowadays. Hand that to Miss Fairfax. You have filled my tea with lumps of sugar, and though I act most distinctly for bread and butter, you have given me cake. I am known for the gentleness of my disposition and the extraordinary sweetness of my nature, but I warn you, Miss Cardew, you may go too far to save my poor, innocent, trusting boy from the machinations of any other girl. There are no lengths to which I would not go. From the moment I saw you, I distrusted you. I felt that you were false and deceitful. I am never deceived in such matters. My first impressions of people are invariably right. It seems to me, Miss Fairfax, that I am trespassing on your valuable time. No doubt you have many other calls of a similar character to make in the neighborhood. So when the fellas return, they have to reveal that they have misled the women and they have to reveal their real names. Mm -hmm. The women learn, of course, that they've been lied to. Um, and the men, the women leave the room 
or they go inside. So they're outside. Yeah. Everyone's coming clean. And the women are like, let's go into the house. The men will never follow us there. But it's cute because they hate each other until the men admit that they are the ones that lie. Yeah. And then Gwendolyn is like, my poor, deceived, beautiful Cecily. <laughs> and then Cecily's like, my gorgeous, gorgeous lie to Gwendolyn. Won't you call me sister? Let's go into the house. The men will never follow us. They're such cowards. And then they go in the house and they're like, did they follow us? And they did not follow <laughs> no. them. They did not follow them. So while they're, they're outside, outside talking, <laughs> eating and whatnot, Algie is always eating. Yeah. While they're outside talking, Algie is like, oh, excuse me. Jack is like, oh, this is terrible. And mm-hmm. Algie is like, this is like the best bumpering <laughs> episode ever. I love it. It's the most wonderful one I had in my life. <laughs> oh, the men confide in each other that they both want to get christened and get that taken care of so they can both be named Ernest. Because that's what the women want. That's what the women want. Uh-huh. Our final act, act three. So we talked about outside. We talked about inside. The women are inside. The men are outside. They make up. And then guess who arrives? Who pops up next? Aunt Augusta. Oh, of course. Yeah. And we find out that Gwendolyn had run away from her maid to go mm-hmm. see Jack. And Aunt Augusta assures Jack, you still can't marry Gwendolyn. Mm-hmm. I mean, you. You're nobody. You're nobody. And you need our permission. Algie tells his aunt that he wants to marry Cecily. And after a brief interview, Aunt Augusta says, Cecily doesn't qualify to marry into our family. Mm-hmm. And Algie. And then she asks um, Jack, yeah, how much does she make though? Why you Why you caring for her? Yeah. He's like, oh, a mere hundred some odd thousand dollars yeah, a year. And he only makes like eight thousand a yes. year. And she was actually okay with that. So to hear a hundred something, she had pause. Right? She was like, oh, dear Cecily, <laughs> you can call me Aunt. <laughs> I can't wait till you marry into our family. We're honored to have you. <laughs> she was like. Ooh, dollars and cents. That's right. <laughs> but Jack then tells Algie and Aunt Cecily, Aunt Augusta, uh, Cecily can't marry y'all without my permission. That's right. So now he has the upper hand. He has the upper hand. And Jack is ready to bargain. And he tells Aunt Augusta, if you grant me permission, how can to marry Gwendolyn, mm-hmm. I'll grant you permission. If not, we both get to get we all get to get comfortable with celibacy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Before Augusta can convince Gwendolyn to leave, Augusta hears a name that's familiar to her. Mm-hmm. And that's the governor's name, which I hadn't said yet. And that's Mrs. Prism, Miss Prism. Mm-hmm. Augusta demands, this is Aunt Augusta, Algie's aunt, demands for the woman to be brought in because there's a story. A little yeah, bit yeah. of story mm-hmm. for this. So it turns <laughs> it's out. It's very abrupt because she walks in and then the aunt goes, where is that baby? <laughs> and Mrs. Did. Prism is like, whoo. <laughs> Immediately. <laughs> yeah. And Lady Bracknell is, the aunt is like, you know, 
Tell me, where is that baby? Exactly. So 28 years ago, Mrs. Wait, can we pause? Yeah. So when we first meet Cecily, I forgot to mention, she loves writing in her diary. And Lady Bra- uh not Lady Bracknell, I'm sorry, Mrs. Prism, her governess slash teacher, you know, that's a governess. Uh, the governess is like, I used to love writing too. In fact, I wrote a novel, but the manuscript, alas, was lost. I mean, like literally lost. I lost it. And then I stopped writing. So go ahead. Yeah. Fast so, forward. Mm-hmm. 28 years ago, Miss Prism left Augusta's home with a baby in a baby carriage mm-hmm. and never returned. Right. Now, there's some illegal stuff going on with that. Like she like never returned. The police was called. They looked for the baby, but the baby was never found. From Augie's house. So odd. <laughs> so very odd. Uh-huh. Only a manuscript with a novel was found in an empty baby carriage. Augusta asked Miss Prism again, where is that baby? Miss Prism says, listen, I'm ashamed, but I don't know where that baby is. Yeah, I went to take the baby and I completely understood. You ever have two things in your hand and you forget something else? But one of them was never a baby. Ah. (laughs) So one time I had a stack of books and a coffee, oops, sorry, and a coffee in my hand. And I forgot my purse at home. So that's what happened to Mrs. Prism. She had her manuscript. She accidentally put that in the bassinet. She put the baby in the handbag where the manuscript was supposed to go. Went to the train station and forgot the baby in the handbag. That's what happened. She looked in the bassinet. It was a whole uh, manuscript in there. But also she never went back to the house. So like she ran for her life. Yeah, because she had lost the baby. She didn't know where. And then shows up. Understandable. As a governess <laughs> elsewhere. And yeah, in the country. Really with her collar high, like, oof. Yeah, yeah. The she, people. They yeah. get what they, they reap what they sow. That's right. Get them. Yeah, she's very judgy. And look, <laughs> she done lost a whole baby. A whole baby. And Jack says, wait, where did you put that handbag? Was it Louis Vuitton? <laughs> and he runs upstairs, brings down a Louis Vuitton handbag. And she's like, yes, that was the bag. That was the bag. <laughs> and Jack, believing now, based on the story that Miss Prism is his mother. And she's like, oh, no, I'm not Slow your mother. Your okay, you almost <laughs> had to figure it out, but now you've gone too far. No, Miss Prism tells Jack, no, she thinks the mother... Augusta might know who the mother is, but I'm not your mother for right, sure, right. for sure. And Augusta tells Jack that his mother is her sister making. Wait, Augusta? Yeah, I'm Augusta. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Lady mm-hmm. Bracknell. Yes. Yes, yes. Tells Jack that his mother was her sister making him Algernon's older brother. That's right. So now him and Algie, Timothée Chalet and um, <laughs> Tom, Tom Holland are brothers. Yeah. So it's when they ask, so the reverend is here, the vicar is here and he's like, okay, so y'all ready to get christened? And um, they're like, well, let me see what my name is first. What was my father's name? And no one really remembers. No one remembers. They didn't like him. And so they're <laughs> like, well, he off. was in the army. Let's go through the army records. And guess what his name was? Ernest John. Yes. Yeah, so his name is actually Ernest. The end. Let's take a quick break. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. <laughs> Okay, 
Corey, what do you think of our first play? So this is one of those situations where in comedy, there are some serious critiques on society. I love about this that in in many ways, it's open criticism of societal norms. Lady Bracknell, who's Augusta, um, she represents like the social order created by the aristocracy at oh, the time. Oh, for sure, for sure. And how foolish their rules are and how they're easily swayed by money and power and class. Yeah. And then you have the reverend who we didn't give a lot of attention to, but there's this hilarious scene where Jack is um, telling him, I want to get Kristen. Am I too old? And then the reverend's like, yeah, but it's fine. We'll just sprinkle your head just like we do the babies. In fact, I got some babies coming. You can come and get baptized when they come. And Jack's like, oh, that sounds childish. Uh, can I come by myself? <laughs> so it's like this uh, arbitrariness of the church. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you have Mrs. Prism, the governess who represents education. And all of them have failed society. <laughs> and the products of the, their failure are these people who want to marry each other. They're all idiots. They're all self-centered idiots in a lot of ways who lie for no reason, who live just to uh, who who live with very strong main character syndrome. All of them. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I they love are. that. I yeah. love the critique in the characters. Um, also, this Edwardian conversation reminds me a lot of hip hop music because oh. there are punchlines. And that's really how people behave. They practice their conversation before dinner parties, for example, mm-hmm. so that they would have witty banter. And with everyone practicing at home, it was it was artificial conversation. Yes, yes. yes. But in a lot of ways, it's hilarious. It's great. It's it's wonderful. So um, so hilarious. <laughs> maybe it's like an affected way of living publicly that again is practiced and artificial, but it is entertaining to watch. And this is truly when you watch Downton Abbey and um, Maggie has one day I'm gonna watch w- that. Oh yeah, you don't watch it. But anyway, uh, Maggie has has these great one liners all the time. That's really how people live. They live to be witty. And that respect for language and communication, I really love. Um, So, yeah, the punchlines remind me a lot of um, like hip hop. Anyway, so and then, of course, there's this big umbrella of a theme, the importance of being earnest. Mm -hmm. And that was something that Oscar Wilde was really devoted to the importance of being intense in your convictions and sincere in everything you did. So what were your thoughts on the importance of being earnest? Listen, I love to laugh and I'm telling you, I laughed through this whole book. I was, I read it on the way from Hilton Head to Georgia and I read it so quickly. I love short books. It was so easy to read and and follow and just the little, the bit of wit that was throughout the book. I just loved every second of it. And so it makes me want to read his next work, whatever mm-hmm. else he's got out there, because I enjoyed it so much. Laughter to tears and just the discussion about it. You brought out some things that I was like, oh, I did, I missed that. But it's all in there mm-hmm. and you can it's so easy to read. And I've listened to it a couple of times as well. And at first I didn't like the the audio version mm-hmm. of it. But the more I listened to it, the more I appreciate it and the 
the louder I laughed. Okay. It was really great to enjoy. I love those slow burns. Mm-hmm. Look forward to us diving into another place. So I hope we get to do one soon. If not, I'll be picking one. Yeah, I got some Tennessee Williams I'm looking at right now on my shelf that we got to get to. So, yeah, that'll be fun. Okay, well, why don't you tell us what we're considering next week? Yeah, so next week we're going into a graphic novel, I think our third um, ever, and it's called Seek You. Um, This is a graphic novel by (laughs) Kristen Raddick. And this has been talked about a lot. It has a lot to do with loneliness, um, especially male loneliness in America, Mm. but in a really poignant way where it's putting the medicine in the sugar um, because it's a really well done graphic novel. yeah, so Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness by Kristen Radke. Okay, cool. So thank you for listening to Lit Society um, and watching us. If you're watching us today, we look forward to meeting up with you next week, Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Honoria, that's me, and Kari Herrera. Hey. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. As we do, we love love you you. too. (laughs) If you've enjoyed what you just heard, please tell a friend about us and visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time, readers, read read something. something.